0: Welcome to the EI Podcast, back for another week of true crime with Kyle and Gary Eastridge. All right, we're back. Everyone's back and over the shot vid. And uh, today, it's me, it's Brian. I'm back and we're going to talk crazy cases, foul smells. Put your kids to bed. This could uh, this could get a little sporty. <clears throat> so, who wants to kick it off? Good, I'll kick it off. Anyway, so <laughs> Thanksgiving of 2005, I got a call on a body. And uh, it, you guys are familiar with hoarder houses, right? Oh, yeah.
1: Well,
0: this, this lady had not shown up for Thanksgiving, so... Relatives had found her, and uh, the disturbing thing was she was right in the entryway. Then I had to go into the house, you know, to do the proper investigative, uh, make sure there's no foul play or whatever. And uh, she's laying there with a pan of stuffing and a turkey, one on each side of her in each hand, and has the most terrified look on her face. And she expired from a heart attack. But I had my now first wife riding with me and i had to actually physically step over the body to get into the house and she had that look on her face like she would reach up and bite my thigh kind of thing and then i had to find the rabbit trail through this house that smelled like a i don't know like an old bookstore or something it was pretty pretty foul and of course you know when a human body expires they discharge typically fluids fluids, and uh yeah, it was not pleasant. That was the that one always stands out to me because it's Thanksgiving, and uh, secretly I wondered how the stuffing was that was underneath it.
1: And Did you try it? No,
0: I didn't. But uh, I was hungry. Uh, but I told my ex, I said, I got to step over this lady, and it just looks like she's gonna bite me. And she goes, Well, can I go up there with you? And I said, Yeah, there's nobody else here. Of course, a blatant violation of policy now, but um, she walked up and she goes. Yeah, I'd try to go in the side door. That's disturbing. So that was one of mine.
2: <laughs> All right. That
0: was pretty bad. And the hoard, the hoarding of this house, I can only describe as epic. Um, we're talking you, piles. Did you try the
1: dinner she was preparing? That's...
0: No, but the family members that were there were like, and she had her famous plate of stuffing and her famous oh, turkey. And I'm looking in the house going if you knew the surfaces that right. was prepared on if you would who knows there's, there's some secret say, ingredients in don't there.
1: don't eat people's uh, food that's uh, what ever don't, eat, I, don't eat the ham everybody. in the property room right and, I, I took you're gonna a eat uh, this sandwich like jeffrey Do you remember that absolutely
2: i took a you uh, ate the sandwich didn't i took you? a call on one that was uh came in as a uh suspicious death and It was up at 122nd North MacArthur. And got up there and met the patrol officers. There was about four of them there. And so I go inside. Well, one officer had been in and had it pretty well secured. And uh, the other patrolman was kind of standing back. And I said something about, hey, come in here. I said, I left my flashlight. I said, if you don't mind, come in here with me and, and light this up. And he's like, no, I'm not going in. I said, well, you're, you're a policeman. You don't have that option. He goes, I'm not going in. I'll quit. And I go, all right, well, let me load you, let me, uh, load me your flashlight. So I go in and this, this guy was rather large. The victim Uh it turned out to be a natural death of some type. And it was, he was in that, uh, HL could probably properly describe the state, but he's in that state where he's, the skin is kind of blistered and he's starting Some skin to, slipping, to, sure. to uh, Marble ooze out. and he had about uh, eight or nine inches of ooze all the way around his uh, his body. So
3: lots of putrefaction I, and then expansion from gas. Yeah, and, <laughs>
2: and like we're that. looking around and of course it smells like a decomp. and sure. And uh, we spend about an hour looking everything over, and we just we don't see anything of concern. So uh, we call for the ME and a patrolman standing outside, good distance from the front door. So I just set his streamlight right at the edge of the backside of the ooze uh and i went outside and i go hey man thanks for uh loaning me your flashlight he goes yeah were you done with it and i go yeah it's in there next to the body you go and <laughs> get it he goes i'll buy a new light now those those lights were what oh, 150 bucks or the, so
1: they're rechargeable ones the
2: stream lights yeah
1: they could be up to two or yeah, yeah. Easy but yeah. but
2: just to show you how things had changed uh, he was willing to walk away from a hundred and twenty or hundred and fifty dollar light uh, just so he didn't have to experience that. Back in my day, uh, that was uh, about a, a fourth of your pay. So, yeah, no
1: kidding. But you know, it's nobody wanted to be in those. Yeah, you had to be there.
2: So Kyle how did you and HL you've probably been on more death scenes than all of us confi- uh, combined how did you uh, deal with smells
3: So I had a uh, a string back when we were when we were uh, you know at short FTE as they say a few full-time agents working in the Oklahoma City office we were in a three-man rotation for a little while and I managed to pull at least d- two decomps every set uh, for some uh. reason so, I would uh sort of had the the bad luck if you if you want to call it that or just the pattern of, of doing that A couple of them that stick out to me uh as far as how I'm to deal with them are showing up at the scenes where people would try to hand you vix vapor rub or mm-hmm. uh uh cigarette filters mm-hmm. or uh, even a full fledged respirator before you enter the scene now a lot of these things uh that you go in and work. A bad decomp was in the middle of the summer when it's already 105 outside and putting on a full respirator and a Tyvek suit and all those things just makes it worse. But one of those times where I did accept that level of PPE, which is probably required now, was a a house in Edmond. And uh, this always seemed to be a recurring theme. Uh, It was a, a lady that drove an ice cream van around the neighborhood. She hadn't been seen for a few weeks. She had some out-of-state relatives that had contacted the PD to do a welfare check. And she was a bad hoarder, like Brian was describing. Uh, The front door of her house, you could get into, like, the entryway. But then there was a mountain of newspapers and pizza boxes. The pizza boxes went back so far as to, if you recall, Little Caesars used to do two pizzas on a flat tray that had a paper sleeve over it. Mm -hmm. This is from way back in the early 90s and... And uh, those were stacked up; she had every pizza box she'd ever had, every newspaper she'd ever received, and then three buckets and I'll give you guesses as to what was being mm. stored in those three buckets, and she mm. doesn't have working plumbing, so she had pee yeah. she had vomit, she had uh excrement. We had to climb over that mountain into this uh sort of hole and then into the living room uh she was i want to say that she was on the uh uh, master bedroom bed, sort of uh, recumbent left side. Uh, it was. It ended up being a natural death, but just because of the state of her decomposition, it took a long time to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we've talked about on the podcast before, you always go into this expecting that your crime scene is a homicide because you can't go and work backwards. You can only go and work forward. So we worked it as if there was suspicion, eliminated that, and got to the point where she... Uh, you know, this is an, an a, a natural death that just happens to be unintended. In the state of Oklahoma, that just means, you know, she wasn't being followed by a physician for potentially fatal illness. So there's no one to sign her, her DC. Uh, it came time for the transport to remove the body. Um we start, well, let me back up. We had been crawling through this house trying to determine exactly what the situation was, if there was anything that made us think that this was anything other than just an unintended natural. Uh, when I get there, everyone is strapping on the Tyvek suits and uh, using duct tape between their boots and in the... In the the leg and, and
2: you call that a clue when you show up and that's going on. I was in a, in a
3: sort of a young cocky phase where I don't need your PPE. I'll just go walk it out and we'll figure out what's going on there. And then one of the uh, uh, Edmund TIs, who's uh, uh, now one of their very good uh, lieutenants or captains, maybe a captain by now. um, She's, she tells me, Hey, uh, you want to take one of these suits? And I'm like, I don't need it. And I'm about halfway to the door. And she says, well, you know, there's, brown recluse spiders running all through there. Oh, and I yeah. was like, I'll take, uh, I'll take one of your suits. <laughs> if anyone else knows me, they know that that is not one of my, uh, not one of my favorite gigs. So we finally get crawled in there. Uh, every other room in the house is equally stacked up uh, to the point that to get her out of this house, we actually had the fire uh, academy come out. They were running an academy at the time. Uh, they made us enough room to get in there, but then we couldn't get the gurney down the hall because of the uh, larger objects that she had barricading her in her room. So fire went to the back wall of this house, which was brick, uh, brick veneer, basically like a lot of home builds around here, and cut a huge square out of the brick, ah. through the plywood, into the back bedroom, and we took her out that way.
1: Uh-huh. Jeez. And
3: then, uh, you know, later on, I think we found out she was renting, so I'm sure that uh, the landlord oh was, oh, yeah. was not uh, overly pleased with our extraction, but necessary.
2: I can I can remember when I started when I first went to homicide my partner kept a pack of the cheapest Roy Tan cigars in his glove box sure and uh, I asked him what that was for and he said that was for decomps but you were you mentioned something that triggered a little memory Kyle uh,
0: hold on just a second HL you win no matter what is said on the podcast oh, going forward more. you freaking win i've, oh, I've yeah. got
3: i've got oh, more <laughs> oh,
2: oh yeah uh, the sad thing is this becomes somewhat normal for us sitting in this right. room seeing that experiencing that it's unpleasant but it's it's kind of a part an unpleasant part of your job you just learn to deal with it but something you said Reminded me, Kyle, of your decomp in the tractor trailer at the truck stop.
1: Yeah, I think we talked about that on one of the episodes, but I don't know if I I got into detail on it, but, you know, one of the reasons they thought that guy may have been murdered was he had this, uh, what appeared to be an incision across his belly... I guess it was. It was a surgery. Post-surgical. Yeah, it was post-surgical. But when he decomped and he fell out of that, he split right at that that incision. Lunchtime in June in the parking lot had drawn so many people wanting to see what was going on. (coughs) This guy bounced off the pavement and split open. And you just heard this collective scream of people running. <laughs>
2: to back what? up a little bit, he was in the sleeper of the truck. And right. probably died, right?
1: Yeah, it turned out natural causes, but uh, he'd been there so long, and the prostitutes from the, uh, we called them lot lizards, you know, yeah. they were coming to robbing from him as he was dead. because you could see where they were tracking through, decomp blood to get into the truck but but uh i just remember the crowd gathering and getting closer and we're having to tape we had it taped off around this semi trying to keep people back once they saw it they they didn't want to see it anymore but the the crazy part of that is eric richardson R- RTI, as we called them, CSI, and John Howard from the medical examiner's office, he he did what you did. Yeah, right, he's a forensic death investigator, yeah. And they were in that cab working with this guy for probably an hour trying
2: to get the seat out. They had to get, remove the seat to get him out. That's another thing that a lot of people don't understand is once you have a body that is deteriorated, trying to get that packaged and out of whatever the environment it is in and get it to the ME's office. I always hated when you had a very large person and then you call for the ME's transport and they only sent one guy. Yeah, exactly. And he was a little guy, you know, and you'd like, oh, hell. Oh, yeah.
3: That was something that people, you know, on the outside didn't have a concept of. We didn't you know drive bodies around like you might if you'd worked at a coroner's office a county coroner's office or something like that. We our job was to go from one scene to the next and work uh, death investigations and there there would not have been logistically time for us to transport the bodies ourselves. So we had a a mortuary service that bid the contract every I don't know every 2 years or something and uh, they actually came out and would load the bodies and transport them to to the ME's office and like you mentioned it might be in the middle of the night and they might have one uh, basically funeral home employee on call that was a yeah. young lady that was 98 pounds or whatever
2: yeah i remember i, I worked a uh, suicide up uh on yeah, up in the britain area britain just south of nichols hills um and he was decomp but not just I don't know the different stages sure. uh, uh, as far as a technical word, but uh, he was smelling. It was not a pleasant scene, but it wasn't the worst I'd ever been in. So I fired up a Roy Tan, and then we called for the, uh, ME, uh, uh, for the transport. And the ME investigator showed up. After they were finished, we called for the transport, and the guy comes walking in. And I don't know what his, and PPE stands for personal protection equipment, correct? Yeah. Uh, I don't know where he had obtained this PPE, if it was in fact PPE, but it looked like a uh, maxi pad. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) I gave him holy hell over the maxi pad so much that uh, he went outside, took it off, and then he gagged and I was afraid he was going to puke in our scene, but, uh,
0: speaking of puking in scenes, I got uh I got a good one. Not my finest hour. I had a guy die in a Winnebago in July Ooh. and he was an amputee. So moving him was, it, it, he wasn't balanced when the Emmys came to move him, but, uh, I, I couldn't get into the Winnebago, but I could see him in there, and I could see the flies, and I finally, I reached in, I unlocked the door, and I opened the door as the family has gathered around, and oh. the smell hit me, and I had just eaten at Pizza Hut on Lincoln. You remember the old Pizza Hut on Lincoln, oh, North yeah. Lincoln that was, yeah. 15th, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I had just had an all-you-can-eat pizza buffet, and I donated it right back to the side of <laughs> that Winnebago in front of his family and friends. And this poor lady says, uh, "Sir, is he dead?" I said, uh, "If by what I just did is any indication, yes, he is. He is expired."
1: Uh, that's funny. That that reminded me of a suicide. Me and Ken Whitebird worked on the west side of town. That in a trailer, guy had his. You know, like all of them sad deal. Guy had lost his job and. Had no money, couldn't pay his electric bill. This is hottest part of summer, and he, he had they'd shut his power off. He had no air conditioning. He shoots himself in a chair, and then something we haven't mentioned on this yet is decomp blisters. He had decomp blisters on his knees that were probably the size of cantaloupes. Well, I went out in the yard, and I'm talking to family, and then the guy, the ME investigator, I won't name him, I think you know who it is, comes running out of the front door and runs up to a TI truck and starts spraying his face with... uh, hand sanitizer oh the sanitizer stuff. i just
2: took a drink of scotch <laughs> just as you and i know where you're headed now he
1: got uh oh. ken whitebird walked out and he's as white as a sheet and he goes man that was gross i said what happened he goes he got to manipulating his feet trying to figure out how they're gonna get him out of the chair and those Blisters busted, sprayed him right in the face. Uh. Uh.
3: Right. So, for the uninitiated, uh, that what he's referring to the the blistering that occurs during the decomposition process and the, the swelling of gases produces a, a fluid basically between the dermal layers, and you get these large blisters of fluid that are very, you know, unstable with a thin layer of epidermis on the outside. So, moving those bodies, they were they were going to rupture and those were those were kind of things that you had to document in advance because they looked uh, that artifact could look like trauma to the doctor when you got back to the uh, to the morgue. But,
2: that was the other thing from an investigator standpoint is people who saw that couldn't understand sure. what they were seeing. Right. You know, I've had decomps where they were described as being burned. Well, they weren't burned. They just the body had blackened and and putrefied and uh, it's it's a mess it's one of the most unpleasant experiences for me personally i never puked on the scene but i got close a couple of times uh, but decomp smell was was is something you'll never forget right. just, especially people yeah. It's different than animals. It, it really is. It's it's like the same smell but on steroids and it's got a different. But anyway, what troubled me was living victims with significant injury. I could look at at, at all of the mayhem that humans are capable of committing on other humans and if they were dead, it didn't bother me a great deal, but if I saw somebody injured with a significant, you know, a, 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 a fracture, a compound fracture. Absolutely. Where there's bone showing. Or where even, well, even I, I remember for anybody that watched football, when Dak Prescott got his ankle broke and, oh, yeah. and his his foot was pointing in a direction that you could look at and say, uh, that ain't right. That stuff make me gag. Right. Uh, you know, I
1: spent eight years in assaults before I went to homicide. And I've always said that the victims in assaults affected me more. You know, there's exceptions like children. They're obviously going to affect you uh, either way. But seeing devastating injuries on a living person to me was always hard. And for some reason, the closest I ever got to getting sick was on a a cutting I worked from a Taco Bell drive-through, and it's a guy I actually—it was one of. um, um, Nice. Do you remember? um, What's it, Sid? Sid Haynes. Oh yeah. Sid Haynes ran around with a guy named Donnie Baker in high school. I don't know if you remember him. I've and uh, uh, they, it was a guy that was in their crew. He, he's in a drive-thru at a Taco Bell, and he, he's a white guy, and he starts trouble. And you got to understand these guys, they were trouble to begin with. But he starts trouble with a black guy in front of him in the line and they start talking shit. The black guy gets out and just swipes him across the face with a straight razor. So I'm talking to this guy in the ER and I'm leaning over him trying to take pictures and he won't shut the fuck up (laughs) and his lips are flapping and blood is just spraying everywhere and he's cut across his teeth where you can see his teeth through his <clears throat> through his lips it was everything I could do not to puke right in his face because yeah. I had to lean over to take 35 millimeter shots yeah. you know and I'm telling him you gotta shut up if you don't shut up I'm gonna puke right in your face
2: he wouldn't do it I still remember one of the uh, the worst ones that, and it really wasn't that bad as far as appearance but I worked at domestic at uh, 28th and uh kelly there used to be an apartment complex just north of 23rd and then it was uh on the west side of of kelly i think it's been torn down now i believe believe they may have built uh the department of health right there didn't they or something well this guy and his uh girlfriend living girlfriend had uh got into it and uh he decides to sleep on the on the sofa, and she goes to the bedroom. Well, I guess sh- he thought the fight was over, and she she didn't he- hear the bell ring or something. So she went in the kitchen, and like our grandmother used to do, she had a can of baking Uh-oh. grease, a uh, bacon grease, right? that she would save to use when she was cooking. Well, she heated it up Uh-oh. until it was sizzling, and just tossed it on his chest. Oh, Jesus. And, of course, when we get there, he's screaming just in, in pain, but he was a pretty dark-skinned black male, and where that had burned him, it the skin split, and underneath you could just see these lines of... Of white, I would uh, probably the fat layers, yeah,
3: subcutaneous, Uh,
2: and he's just screaming in pain, and she's standing there laughing, and it
1: was, it was burns were always one of my, I just burns are horrible, yeah, you know, um, Uh, uh, Scott Smith and I worked the. The Napoleon Lewis case. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he set the the girl and we the ended up, fire. homicide ended up yeah, working the,
2: on that some too. Well, they sent us out when they, Ther- they Teresa Bebout wasn't it Tressa Tressa I yeah. think it was.
1: They sent assaults out and they suspected the little girl was going to die. In fact, when we got to the hospital, the doctor told us he didn't think she was going to make it. It turns out that the mom ends up dying and Tressa ends up making it. And then you guys took it over in homicide after that. But that doctor at Children's asked me not to go in and see her. He said, you don't want to have to go see this kid with these injuries. I said, I I don't want to see him, but it's my job. I may have to testify to this, you know.
2: That was yeah. uh that occurred on March twenty eighth, nineteen ninety five. Yeah. Uh, her mom was Anita Bebout and then uh Napoleon Lewis uh died of a heart attack in prison in two thousand. On so, death row, I On think. death row, yes. Is
1: he the one that flipped off the jury after the guilty
2: but no, I uh, think that was Tyrone Dark's wasn't it? Uh, Napoleon been. Napoleon yeah. Lewis is the one that Oh, somehow or another, when the the media they brought him in right. through the the front of the police station, and the media was sitting there, and he basically said uh, he was mad at her, and he did it, and he'd do it again, or right. words that effect confessed right on the yeah front on, on front media
1: steps. But I I know I've I've checked up on her in the years since then and she's turned out really you can't tell she's burned she was ever burned but she was in a lot of i mean she had a lot of burns i I
2: believe the shriners they were real significant in her recovery i saw a picture of her oh it's been within the last five or ten years and she she looks they i was there when she testified I don't remember why. I don't remember if they were wanting extra people there or what because I just had minimal involvement in the case. But she had the compression right. material on her arms and she wore, she a, wore mask a mask. mask it yeah. almost looked like the ballistic mask right. that I've shared pictures of me and uh, Blake Webster yeah. on, a, on a drug raid wearing the ballistic mask. It looked. A lot like a ballistic-type mass. Brave little girl took the yeah. stand. And she wasn't, what, 10, maybe? No, she was younger than that. She was little.
1: Yeah. Because uh, uh, I think she was, wasn't it,
2: at that elementary
1: she was picking her up at over there off the field? Seems,
2: seems like it was. And, and the actual, he he ended up bumping his car into him, to make him stop. hmm and then they ran inside uh, one of those mobile home sales places.
1: Yeah, the, I remember um, I went with Gil Riggs to interview that guy. There was a guy from that mobile home sales that ran over and rendered aid, trying to put the fire out, mm. and he was burned on his arms I pretty that. bad. And it's just a, a super
2: guy that to yeah. jump
1: into something like that and try to help out.
2: but I was always so struck by that little girl's bravery. to Lose your mom, be traumatized, have life-threatening injuries, and have the courage to take the stand right. at, at, at a very young age and testify against uh, uh, our... You know, I've never like saying testify for or against because in reality you're not you're just testifying, testifying, you're testifying you know. to the fact but she she was able to tell her story and uh ultimately it resulted in a conviction for lewis
1: that's that's just one of those crazy cases that you you just if you talk about these things with everyday people they probably think you make up half of it but it's just there's the the stuff people do to each other. Yeah, never ceases to amaze me.
2: Yeah, it's uh, you know, when you you talk about when we hear this defund the police movement, that's that's kind of I th- I think it's kind of starting to taper off because a lot of people are starting to see What's the negative it, what impact happens? Yeah. when you start to reduce enforcement. But going back to this case you hit on something people have no idea we're a city of i think the metro is somewhere around two and a half million people and of that there are a significant number of people that are that are capable of incredible inhumanity towards other people
1: yeah and i think hl's probably seen more of it than we have
2: well he's you know in in that position with the medical examiners, you don't only see the inhumanity of man against man, you just see the natural process of life and death right which is as we get older, you start to realize uh, you know that's the only way out of this gig is right. death so sure but you uh you said something about a funny and that it reminded me of a case it's not that big of a gory case, but Tell about the guy that spit the bullet out. Uh,
1: Yeah, that that has a lot of interesting elements to it, like even the mental health aspect to it. Scott Smith and I were partners, Bluto, everybody knows him as, in in assaults. And they created a domestic violence unit. So we ended up working in that for a while. And then going back to assaults after they got that unit up to running enough people in it and everything, and this guy attacked his wife during a a birthday party with her, their kid had kids over, mm-hmm. like that's that's my kids never got to spend the night anywhere because we were cops, you yeah. know. It's like we nah, don't trust. I you, don't right? know them people. Yeah. And he comes, down, he comes down in the middle of this party with a bayonet and stabs her with it, runs off. Well, she calls the police, goes to the hospital, all that stuff. Well, uh, police, you know, they don't initially find him. She ends up being released and goes home, and hears a gunshot in the attic and they find him up in the attic where he stuck a twenty-two rifle in his mouth and fired it, or it might have been a pistol. I can't remember. I just remember that it's one of those things that the gun was destroyed in the property room, and mm-hmm. they couldn't charge follow through later. But um, he shot himself in the roof of the mouth, and that projectile <coughs> locked behind an eye. So they they arrest him, take him to county, take him to the hospital. The hospital says he's going to lose that eye, but there's nothing they can do about it now. So they book him. So we get him to bring him over. <clears throat> we got him in the room up there, gonna do the spiel, and he looks terrible, man. He's got this eye bugging out of his head about an inch, you yeah. know. And he asked for a hot cup of coffee, and I thought, that's a terrible idea, but I'm going (laughs) to see where this goes. So I go get him a cup of coffee, and he sips it, and he grimaces real hard. And see, he's trying to uh, recover from the burns in his mouth. And a little bit, he spits into his hand, and it's a projectile. So he tries to hand it to Scott, and he goes, you guys probably want that. And Scott just points at a piece of paper on the table and says, Just
3: put it there.
1: In a little bit, we're talking to him, and I see one of his front teeth are wiggling. It's just like it's flopping around. I thought, What the? So he reaches up and he pulls it out, and I said, Just put it with the, with the bullet. With, with the other shit falling <laughs> out of your head. So he put it there. But um, he confessed everything. It's a domestic case, so there's sell the mysteries involved in them, but the bad part about it is they determined that he was uh, mentally incompetent. So they send him to Venita or somewhere like that. About two years later, they determine he's competent now, and they kick him out, and the DA's office wants to proceed with criminal charges. Well, somebody ordered that gun destroyed before that point, And it wasn't me
2: and, uh, they couldn't, we could, we could do a whole podcast on cases that oh, have been no screwed share. up because of command mismanagement of evidence. Right. And, and it all comes down to, and I understand the, the, the issue. They, they end up with a property room full of evidence and they don't. They want it cleared out as soon right. as possible. And and the problem is, as we know from a death case, uh, homicide cases, we don't destroy the evidence. No. Uh, and, and and that's the Richard Glossop case that is up, has made national news. One of the big issues in that case was evidence was destroyed from the scene two years after conviction. The note on the destruction, I know the officer that did it. I've spoke with her and she said I was ordered by a supervisor to do it. Right. Said uh, uh, case adjudicated, uh, suspect convicted, uh, all appeals exhausted. Well, you and I know that two years later they didn't exhaust all the appeals. and As a matter of fact, that's was 1998 and there's still appeals going right. on so
1: well and and that's exactly it i remember it i think my wife got reprimands for it mm-hmm. where they would send out they would print off your mci the the management sheet of mm-hmm. your cases in the computer
3: get rid of everything get you get get
1: rid of this evidence we don't we don't need it well I don't know if I don't need it and I also know that there are plenty of assault cases that that evidence might end up being tied to something homicide was working or yeah. gangs or anybody you know robbery yeah it's That's it's it's just strictly a housekeeping thing they give no th- thought to beyond
2: it yeah we've kind of uh, that was my fault for turning things no, sideways okay. but that is that's almost we could do a whole topic a whole episode we could yeah over mismanagement and, and like i say we 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 understand but the police department i've started doing a little video series on because i'm a, a gun enthusiast and I like specifically Smith and Wesson revolvers, so I'm starting to do a little video series. And my main reason for doing it is to kind of document uh, some of the history that is escaping us. Absolutely, Uh, the department just has really done a terrible job as far as documenting
1: history. I and and that and the history alone should be preserved. One of the things I noticed about this cavalier attitude that they had, and we can, like you said, we can do a host uh, podcast on this, was when I went to cold case, they threw out a lot of old cases. They didn't, I mean, it was just ignorance. Because one of the first things we mentioned, uh, Mike Berg did with uh, John George, was they went through all these old unsolved cases looking for evidence. Well, uh, by the time I got in there, they had the, uh, the cold cases stored in a, a room downstairs. And who knows? Which-
2: in which case was it that, uh, wasn't it Sissy Beatty, that the evidence was missing? And, in a, in and the And you ceiling. found it, somebody had squirreled it away in yeah. the ceiling because they didn't want it to be destroyed in one of the big command purges. Right. And that uh, main suspect just died, what, in the last two or three years ago? ago. Yeah, I, I followed and that was from him. 1975, I believe? Uh, yeah. Five, six-year-old in year old, there, somewhere innocent in there. Girl. She
1: was. She was taken from her her mother, had some people over. She was taken from the house in the middle of the night, taken from the north side up there off of somewhere around 21st in May or something like Mm -hmm. that. Taken away down here by the river in Cleveland County. And and that she's down about 544. Yeah. Yeah. And her whole case. Her whole case was in an old Xerox box in the ceiling. Under the ceiling tile. They found it by accident because they were trying to run a cable line so they could get cable TV in the office.
2: It's pretty sad that a detective or uh, an investigator knew the safest thing to do was hide it so it won't be destroyed. Right. Well, let's get back on topic on the cases. Well, one Uh, of the
1: things I wanted to mention on, you, you talked about me and HL. I met HL through Homicide. He was working, you know, we worked a lot of bodies together. And I remember the things you learn from working around these guys. I remember one of the first cases I worked with HL was a guy they found out in the field over off of, uh, was that Hefner Road?
3: In the Broadway the, extension almost?
1: Yeah, yeah, the guy that was walking across the field and died probably heat stroke or whatever. Yeah. He was badly decomped. And I'm mm-hmm. standing over HL. I, it may have been one or two. We probably worked a few together because I knew your style by then. And I one of the things I also knew was don't be around these guys when they take their rubber gloves off. Yeah. Because they're going to snap that shit, and th- and, and goo's going to fly everywhere. And uh, I remember there's a young patrol officer there just leaning over HL's shoulder, which he hated anyway because he's, he's got a personal space bubble that's about a mile and a half. <laughs> but I kept tapping this guy and said, he's going to take them gloves off in a minute. You see all that shit on his hands? That's going to fly up into your mouth. Oh,
2: yeah. And that's a, you know, you develop a relationship with the medical examiners, investigators, because they can really, a good one can really help you start on the right foot right, exactly. or get you
1: off on the bad foot. It I always found it comical, and and this is one whole topic I wanted to do an episode and have a an H.O. cover. I always found it funny, these, because uh, me and you were taught from day one, the body is not ours. Mm-hmm. The scene is our problem. The body is their problem. And I never understood these jurisdictions that wanted to fight over that. They just complicate the case Mm. and make it.
2: Well, the Trinidad case that we discussed here that should be going out pretty soon, uh, that was literally the thing that started that whole case down the path that it ended up taking. Is the the uh, the the BOP staff at the federal transfer center didn't understand the medical examiner's role or the Oklahoma Medical Examiner's Act, and they just saw them as somebody that transported bodies, and all right. they were wanting is that body out of the facility. So. Right.
1: How about you, HL?
3: Well, so what you talked about, those relationships, you know, we had a good relationship with Oklahoma City. You had a, a, you know, professional police force with uh, lots of experience, and unfortunately, lots of experience because of lots of uh, opportunities for experience to work these crime scenes. But uh, there were were those, the smaller departments. Oklahoma City is one of those cities that has a lot of uh, small suburbs or hamlets that have their own. Uh, police departments that are completely surrounded by Oklahoma City, but they sort of exist, uh, you know, as their own city themselves. And in one of those, I, I worked a case, um, and you know, it was a nicer area where they weren't used to the uh, the amount of uh, crime scenes or or even uh, things that they had to respond to that required that sort of training. When I get there, the officer is waiting outside, and he's wearing uh, the first responding patrol officer is outside wearing a full respirator on his face and just shaking his head and telling me he's not going to go back in there. He's the one that called it in. I was there to try and get, you know, an an initial report sheet started. So I determine what do I need to do about the walkthrough? Where do we need to go with this? Um, All of those things, you know, had it occurred in Oklahoma City, it had probably gone through that process in your own department before it even got to me. But uh, we're doing that. I said, go in with me. The big deal on decomp scenes that people didn't understand is coming in and out of those and in and out of those is worse because once you get in there, you do what you need to do to process the scene, go ahead and get the body cleared out, you're done with it. But reintroducing those, those senses, those smells to you uh, you're going to end up throwing a uniform away when you get home is how that's going to work. Right. Yeah. So we get in the house. What had shocked uh, this officer in this instance is he'd been called for a check welfare on, uh, I believe, uh, early 60s. Uh, white male was in his bedroom. He was in the uh, ensuite bathroom of his bedroom. And he'd rigged up a uh, sort of uh, apparatus for his uh, autoerotic uh, asphyxiation. And so what he had in oh, place... we're going to go there, uh, are we? We're here right now. Let's just address it. And we've got a lot of these cases. It could be their own podcast. But this right. one in particular, he'd not been heard from for about a week and a half. So he was using his device, uh, which consisted of a, a large sort of almost like a uh, frame for backyard swings, which made kind of like a, a triangle. And in that apparatus was a reciprocating saw... And attached to that reciprocating saw, instead of a blade, was a uh, um, phallus. A faux A faux phallus, a penis, if you will. And uh, he was...
2: Or a dildo, as most people call it. I
3: believe that is the vernacular, yes. So he was uh, in that position, using that uh, device, and had a sort of attachment on the front that would choke him. He has some sort of natural cardiovascular incident, we discovered later, and uh, is unable to recover, unable to release himself. From that, and uh, you know, succumbs to the uh, hypoxic uh, brain injury situation there. So, mm-hmm. um, and
1: and if he had had a buddy, sure, as I've always said, it's right. the like buddy like system. The, that's right. Yes. It's like the guy with the monkey wrench. will get into. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. only he oh had Lord. a buddy
3: who could have alerted someone. Yes, right. Wait. It, so the big deal on this one was his condition was deteriorated because he'd not been discovered sometime because of the way he was hanging. Uh, as we know, lividity settles in certain areas, so you see decomp on a hanging person different than you see decomp on a person right. who's resting face down or even supine on the ground. So he had a significant That's how amount. I know
1: Epstein didn't kill himself. Well,
3: you keep, you keep stressing that in your groups <laughs> online, but uh, he... Uh, is suspended by this thing. Uh, he's got significant skin slippage and blisters. Like you mentioned, he's very mottled. His uh, facial f- features are now drooping from the skin slippage uh, off his face. And the officer goes outside. He says, I, I can't be in here anymore. Uh, I go with him back outside, just trying to keep him you know, calm. And he immediately vomits into his respirator mask <laughs> and fills <laughs> like, the entire yeah, mask with with vomit so that was not a that might have been worse than the scene to watch uh, that
1: happen. well my my only question was was the apparatus still functioning
3: so i was told that upon uh their response that they believed the apparatus was still functioning this was a uh, not even a, a battery-powered reciprocating saw. It was the old style where you had to plug it in.
1: Oh, Lord. So, so it, a lot of electricity the... was on or motor yeah. water didn't burn out. <laughs> you had to
3: pop a breaker to get some relief. It can run for a little while, but on my arrival, it was not. It was
2: not. I, uh, I'm i aware of one. I didn't personally go out on it. It, it happened uh, while I was in the unit, but we had a. Uh, they had a. Uh, a older gentleman that uh was seeking new levels of pleasure uh during his uh self-pleasuring episodes and he ended up getting uh bumblebees in a jar hmm. and he uh Where
1: does one get such a thing?
2: I'm not sure <laughs> how wall? you catch enough <laughs> bumblebees <laughs> But uh, he placed that over an area I wouldn't want a bumblebee near. Okay. And apparently the pleasure and the pain were so closely interlocked that uh, his system couldn't take it, and he ended up having a heart attack and, and dying. you so, got to know what your load is. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say it that way. Yeah, personally, that's true. Anyway, I think we've been gross enough for today. It's been almost an hour. Almost. We have to cut out the... And Brian's going to have to go get therapy now. Yeah. So. All right. Well.
0: Thanks for joining us for another week of the EI Podcast. Make sure you check out our sponsors. Links are in the show notes.